So there's a massive variation in where the patients are beginning their journey, right? So if you look at SMA, you have caregivers who have to assimilate the diagnosis, the treatment, the process in a very short period of time. And time really is neurons in this case. So the patient may have only lived with the disease for a couple of months. But with multiple myeloma, the patients have been dealing with the diagnosis for a very long time. They are living with the disease, they've experienced prior treatments that may have not worked. And these are the differences that I think are really important to understand if we want to get a better sense of how to bring cell and gene to patients. If you're solving the problems of the past, you're missing the boat. The problems of the past are Hopefully in the past, we have some answers to that, but lots of new problems have emerged. How do I get to the next level? Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Curtis. In one of our first episodes, we talked about the value of customer experience in oncology strategy. The main takeaway from our research was that experience matters. And while that's not surprising, what we found was that the experience was much more beyond the product itself. So it got us thinking, what does that mean if we look at the cell and gene therapy landscape? We know it's important, but how much and why? So we wanted to explore the impact of customer experience from the healthcare professional and patient perspective and how important it is to really drive commercial success. So in this episode, we're asking, what is customer experience in cell and gene therapy? Why does it matter? And how can we do better? Joining me for today's discussion are Pranav Sarastava and Serbi Puri, leaders in our global cell and gene therapy practice. So Serbi, Pranav, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Could you share a brief intro for the audience? Pranav? Sure. So I'm a lead partner in our cell and gene vertical at ZS, and I also have led our customer experience work for the past 10 years. Hi, I do the work that we do at the intersection of cell and gene and patient experience, and I spend a lot of my time thinking about how we can design better solutions for patients. Great. Well, it's great to have you both here today. Um, I think this topic is something that's really been a hot topic for, for the industry. And we had done an episode earlier this year about commercialization strategies of cell and gene therapy. And so now I think we want to look at it from a different lens, right? Like customer experience. Let's dive into that a little bit more. Given the unique journey that we, we see with these therapies, how are we thinking about defining customer experience and, and how is this different from other areas that we've looked at it from, for example, oncology? I can take a stab at it. I think the way I would define customer experience anywhere is, is largely the difference between expectation and reality. The difference here is expectations are high. Right? This could be curative, transformative. Like You, you get all these big sounding words uh, that are associated with the expectation. And the reality is it's a tough journey for a very short period of time. It's like hiking a mountain, but it doesn't get over at the peak. <laughs> you keep going uh, after that. Uh, and that, that's what creates the challenge in the space. Right? The customer experience here involves somewhere around 30 to 40 different interactions. So you, you don't have this one moment where I start the therapy and then I stay on. 
uh, it also doesn't have the stay on therapy idea because patients get an infusion and they're off therapy effectively. Uh, so the way historically the space has thought about uh, customer experience in pharma is about the long-term relationship. But in this case, the long-term relationship is slightly different. And I'm not going to be there with you every month with my next pill or next prescription. I'm done. Uh, on day one, the infusion is completed. There is monitoring and there's healthcare required, but pharma no longer needs to be in touch. So you, you almost need a different mindset uh, to deliver that. So that's the, I guess, experience difference in this space versus others. The pay, patient side, and I think about this as if I was given a choice that would be life transformative and I was given two weeks to decide what happens next, I would be terrified. I'm relatively educated and I relatively follow science. I think that choice is terrifying and understanding that moment is very different than you're on three lines of diabetes treatments for 15 years and now here's the fourth line of treatment and we, we kind of understand what you're looking for and how you should behave uh, in terms of the disease progression. Surbi? I think if we're talking about the difference from other therapy areas um, in, in the cell and gene space, typically all these conditions are high stakes, right? They're fairly acute. And adherence is not the major issue, but it's also not completely absent either, especially if you think about how these treatments um, are highly innovative, but they are not a cure uh, in most situations. We also know that there are significantly higher psychosocial barriers for patients and caregivers in getting to the treatment in the optimal way at the optimal time. And so these delays can have a devastating impact on patient lives as well. But I would say that this depends on the therapy area also. So there's a massive variation in where the patients are beginning their journey, right? So if you look at SMA, you have caregivers who have to assimilate the diagnosis, the treatment, the process in a very short period of time. And time really is neurons in this case. So the patient may have only lived with the disease for a couple of months. But with multiple myeloma, the patients have been dealing with the diagnosis for a very long time. They are living with the disease, they've experienced prior treatments that may have not worked. And these are the differences that I think are really important to understand if we want to get a better sense of how to bring cell and gene to patients. It's an interesting point, right? I know we had done a study a couple of years back on customer experience within oncology. And the things that came out of that was the, the product or the therapy, I think was something around a third of the experience, but things like the engagement staff from the pharmaceutical company, along with services, the company reputation, all of those were also very significant and driving the overall experience. I would imagine it's even more so than from everything you've said in cell and gene therapy. It's very much about the staff that's there at the hospital setting. It's very much about the individualized services that are available to patients, more so in some ways than the therapy itself. I don't know, like, what are your reactions to that? That's a great point. I would imagine it's actually different. I don't know if it's going to be greater or lesser. The, the decision-making isn't with the physician. Most of the choices that are made for cell and gene therapies are multidisciplinary teams uh, going through it. So th there's that angle to it. But at a given site, there are anywhere between 10 to 15 people involved in the process. So everyone from the lab tech who has to thaw the product 
to the nurses who are doing the lymphodepletion things like that so the traditional role of the physician isn't the same anymore so even if we focus on their own expectations it's fascinating when you ask them well what was your experience administering this and they're like i've never administered this because that's not their role anymore right their role is to help the patient get over the hurdle uh, it's almost a different mindset in what i view as like an advisor to the patient as opposed to i'm the injector of therapy to you i think that's a big difference the, the other piece that's not in that initial like the customer experience work is a lot of this is dependent on others outside of your own control for the physician so the referring physician is setting an expectation they could have told them this is curative they could have told them this is your only option that right? on all of those choices are influencing how much time i need to spend as a physician so there's actually an externality here that determines the physician's experience which is this referring conversation that occurred outside and right now pharma doesn't do anything to influence or inform the uh, conversation at the referral side the referral is very much based on the you have no options this is an option go here but beyond that there isn't any expectation setting so we can speak to this right there, there is once you even get the referral the patient jumps through a few hoops to get to the referral side from the referral side to the treatment side and then they are back to this okay how is this going to fit in like you are going to treat me and then i go back because patients are also used to this idea of if i'm not treating it's i'm not doing anything about the disease but the whole point of selengine is that you're not treating after the infusion so something to consider on that one well i mean it, to your point like that is that's uh, the kind of promise of of these selengine therapies and so if we think about this and then the impact it has on this dynamic within the the healthcare ecosystem What does that mean then when we think about the different needs that exist for these customer groups? You know, we talk a lot about the patient, but then also the HCPs surrounding them. I'll maybe take us back to when the first ones were approved like Kimraya and Yaskarda were approved about 5 years ago. At that point, what I would argue is all was forgiven. So customers were very willing to jump through hundreds of hoops. make hours of effort to make sure they knew how to do this they were certified they knew exactly what the process was who needed to be where and so on and they spent literally hours getting trained making sure that they were there that was then right it was a novelty relative to the choices the patient had this was an extreme jump and the value delivered was justifying the effort made now there are multiple in the space uh, there are more coming uh, actually cd19s are the most prevalent cell therapy in development today so if even half of them came through it would be you know, probably the most popular class of therapies i think that leads to this what i call regression to the mean right so i can go back to operating with my preferences my ways of working or the practices that i've set up and i don't need to adopt to you so the next company that enters can't dictate new terms they they have to fit into the norm to the extent possible and only be different when they have to be different and so don't create a hey everyone else thaws at 37.2 and we need to thaw it at 38 and now every system has to like re reengineer uh, the process that's going to be slightly more challenging for adopting the therapy out there so i think 
where we are now, there are choices which are familiar to pharma in some ways, brand choice. But the brand choice is being made at a system level, right? So I choose to certify it for A and B and C, but will I certify it for the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but also, what are you doing to reduce my burden? So not to reduce your risk, reduce my burden as a provider. And that's a mindset shift that needs to occur now. For the first therapies, I think it was risk-based and it was fine. And they were like, yes, do whatever you need to do to reduce your risk and we'll we'll go along with it. Uh, right now, they need to address the physician burden of like certifying shouldn't take us months to do. Right? It's not a, shouldn't feel like a bureaucratic process where I send you every copy of every test record ever. Right? It doesn't seem to be required. So that, that That's where I think the space is now. If you're solving the problems of the past, you're missing the boat. The problems of the past are, Hopefully in the past, we have some answers to that, but new lots of new problems have emerged. How do I uh, get to the next level? Even even something as simple as, if you're familiar with uh, apps like OpenTable, right? I can reserve a table on any restaurant I go to. Very few companies offer the ability to pencil in a slot. So if I needed one next month, I can't just say, hey, I think I have a patient. Can I pencil one in and I let you know in 72 hours? No, that that's not an option that's there. And it feels obvious. Right? It's like, why, why not give me some flexibility in getting to the choice right now that that is, so those, those problems are newer to the space. Like we talk a lot about things like slot allocation or uh, referral systems or screening strategies. And those are new problems that folks need to be solving for. And they, they're material to the experience in how we, make this feel more aligned with the ways they have worked in the past. Yeah. And and I think that really highlights the need to throw out like the typical book of marketing that's done, right? Like this is a very fundamentally different way. If you think about marketing, it's really about meeting the customer where they are and solving their needs. But I think typical pharma marketing is very much on, you know, do our segmentation, do our message testing, do our brand differentiation, you know, do our patient support in a way that is just not fit for purpose in this model, like all the brand messaging and, and brand feeling that comes through with the experience. Right? And I imagine like everything that we're hearing and I, I imagine survey from, you know, the intersection on the patient side, this is something that you also see when thinking about how patient needs are understood. 100% and as part of the cell and gene patient experience study that we did this year, we also spoke to two patients who had multiple myeloma and they received the same CAR T treatment, right? And as part of that, they received the same brochure. And one of the patients lives in the UK. She helps care for her granddaughter. And she was so intimidated by the science on the brochure. Uh, I think I remember she said that I saw CAR T and I put the brochure down. She didn't read beyond uh, sort of the front page. And she ended up going to Myeloma UK's Facebook group and got the information she needed over there because for her it was about getting the information in a way that is also establishes some emotional credibility especially from patients who've been through the treatment and have been through this experience on the other hand the second patient was a scientist based in the US and so the same brochure was 
inadequate for her. It didn't have enough information. And she wanted more science. She wanted to see more of the data. And so she went back to her doctor for more um, of the clinical research before she could make her treatment decision. And I think that's that really sort of sets up the stage on how different the needs can be. And so this one genetic solution really isn't going to cut it for most of the patients that we see in these spaces. And I can imagine kind of, you know, building on that, that that resonates across, you know, disease areas and therapies, right? Some patients are more informed, some are less informed, you need to meet them where they're at. But I guess, you know, from what you're saying, like in this context, the the stakes are so much higher when you're making a decision like this, that it's not optional whether or not you provide this, right? No, 100%. It is similar to other spaces. The reason why we should care is something like 80% of patients don't get a CAR-T today. They're eligible and they don't get one. And if I looked at it in aggregate, I will basically serve no one because the pool is so small that I'm creating a solution that doesn't work for most people. Uh, it actually goes back to what you were saying, then. It's first principles marketing, but done at an N equal to one level, right? So what do you need? And how do I make sure that you have what you need? That approach has somewhat not been needed in regular, I guess, pharma. And I think the focus on averages, on like the average profile or the two profiles or the three profiles needs to just be stripped away to how do we understand patients much, much better and much deeper? Because I don't want 80% to say no. That's the reason to do this is you don't want 80% of your tiny pool of patients to say no. Yeah. If this need is coming through in this gap, what is the the state of the industry today? How well is the industry addressing this? Um, And I ask that knowing that you both were recently involved with a a global study on the patient and and healthcare provider experience on cell and gene. What did you find? I can give you the short version. There is, the industry is in flux. Lots of things are being done. The things that initially were valuable are no longer differentiating. So when we look at efficacy, efficacy is largely considered to be a class uh, class effect. And there are numerical differences, but as much uh, that even the safety considerations, numerical differences, but not a deciding factor. Where we do see differences are uh, is in how the sites have been working with the manufacturers to deliver this. So the differences are in site onboarding. Some companies are doing it really well and some are not. They're still forcing you to go through the hoops of their process. Um, The portals, portals are ubiquitous in the space. Everyone has one, largely undifferentiated. They're not being, and even worse, the portals, when they were designed, they missed the operating insight that most likely nurses or administrators are going to fill in this information. It's not a physician who uses the portal. Uh, So you you almost have to have a nurse's mindset of, I'm busy, I need to fill this information in, like get get to the next step. I want the Google version of this, right? Like one, one simple box where I can do this as opposed to uh, making me go through like several pages and get documents uh, uploaded and so on. So those things are where I think we are seeing differences where we can imagine the future will be, but the industry is in flux, right? There's, I used to think about this as a one day there will be best practice. I 
think right now the industry is doing if we just stick with best practice how will we get better <laughs> so they are actually getting better uh, as we go and i think that's a good direction of travel but it's by no means settled on what's the answer and i think from a patient perspective we did look at what offerings exist and we looked across 20 markets it's only four countries that are offering anything to support patients getting a cell and gene therapy today and that support is really either some sort of financial or logistics offering it's really focused on getting the patient to the treatment there's really nothing in the sort of pre-treatment phase or after the infusion and even with the existing offerings there's a huge awareness problem right so in the US, for example, where a lot of these offerings currently exist, less than half of the patients who are eligible for patient support even know that it exists. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for manufacturers to build programs, but also design them in a way that there's awareness with ACPs, centers of excellence, and patients. They're able to harness these offerings and also get the full benefit of their treatment. And having said that, the patients who we spoke to who did get the patient support spoke to how incredibly valuable it was. It made their path to treatment easier. It was able to support them emotionally when they needed it. And I think if we can build out these programs, especially where there's long-term engagement, it benefits the patient for sure. But it also means that we're collecting more data and we're establishing more longer-term relationships, which can also be incredibly valuable to manufacturers. Evidence is the currency in this space, right? The, the promise is durability, long-term outcomes. You need the evidence. And what Survey just described is the path to that evidence. So I need real-world evidence for the next 10 years. Well, I'm not going to get that if most of my patients don't sign up to the registry and like submit their data ongoing. So how do I do that is a thing to look into. Maybe like a stepping back. If you're not experimenting with the experience, you're not going to learn in the space because even if I took the ones that are approved, I took the CAR-T experience. I don't think the CAR-T experience applies to Parkinson's in the future. Uh, I don't think it applies to SMA. Now, if I took the SMA experience and apply it to, to DMD, it doesn't always translate over. So you have to do the experiments with the experience part of it as well. I, like if the analogy is you do the clinical trial for the drug, do the experience trial early so that you're learning what is making it work, right? What do patients have questions about, how they feel as they go through the journey? Even something as simple as, do I need the monitoring to be a on-site monitoring? Can I do it in home? Can I do it near home? Like those are questions to answer in the trial because they will eventually matter and they will impact the evidence that you can collect. They will impact how willing they are to be endorsers of your product afterwards. The single biggest driver of patient choice was talking to other patients who've gone through it. Right? Because guess what? Patient to patient, we can have a human conversation. Right? I go, how did you feel the Monday after? And the patient goes, you know, I felt pretty shitty, but it was okay. Like 48 hours later, I was feeling fine. And no physician can say that. No pharma representative or even MSL can say that. Right? Nobody's gone through that experience. Patients have. And if you can connect patients to other patients, that is an immense amount of value that we can generate for the space as a whole. Yeah, that was one of the most salient points from the study that he had published on the impact of other patient perspectives on the individual patient or caregiver 
interest, desire for cellular gene therapy, which is really different from what we would have expected, right? And I think where a lot of the industries continue to focus on how the healthcare provider talks about the therapy. And Sarvi, I think the point you made around engaging with patients, it makes a ton of sense. It's a bit surprising in the US that only 50% were aware of all the different support programs. I know outside of the U.S., where we do a lot of our global work, this idea of being able to engage with patients is always looked upon with skepticism. So if we think about some of the, you know, insights and recommendations that you were also talking about, Pranav, on engaging patients early, like how do we actually do that? I could see how we do it with the, the physicians and the healthcare providers, this early experience design, but how do we do that with patients more systematically and particularly outside the U.S.? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and we, we definitely hear it a lot. You can engage with patients extensively outside the U.S. The main differences are that the sort of direct-to-consumer channel does not exist outside the U.S., and so before the point of prescription, there has to be unbranded engagement with the patient. Uh, there has to be the sort of the, any information sharing, education support needs to be focused on the disease, on education, on activating the patient so that they're able to ask the right questions, get the right information about their disease and make the right decisions uh, about their treatment with their physician. After prescription, it absolutely can be branded. You can share information with patients on the product across the majority of all the markets that we see in the world today. I think the one thing that we do need to mention is the value of the physician in this equation. So XUS, all patient support, all patient engagement has to reach the patient through the physician. And so I think the one critical point to make here is that the value proposition of any patient solution that you build out has to be crystal clear to the physician. They need to know how this is going to help their patient. They're going to need to know how this is going to ensure that the patient gets the maximum benefit from treatment. And I think we've seen this beyond the cell and gene therapy spaces as well. When physicians know this, they're absolutely willing and happy to get these offerings to patients. I think one, one thing to add here is pharma doesn't have to do it all by themselves. Right? Mm -hmm. It takes an ecosystem to deliver these therapies. It's probably an ecosystem to deliver the support as well. And patient advocacy groups have a role here. The provider has a role here and they need to not necessarily narrow down to, well, what can I pay for and what can I measure? And hence, I will not do this. The compliance aspects are there and they exist for a reason. But if you recognize the patient need, there is a way to solve that problem. We can do that either as an industry collective. Uh, we've seen examples of that, like newborn screening for SMA. That was an industry collective. Uh, we recognize the problem and we came together and we solved it. Uh, so there are other ways of approaching this, which are not, I'm going to pay for a tactic that I own as well. Yeah, I think the kind of collective theme that, that keeps coming back is that we need to continually challenge our instincts to do what we've done in the past. And even, I know it's common to say like, let's look for other analogs. Let's look outside, you know, cell and gene to find some examples of, of different things we can bring in. And it, it's kind of clear. It's like, no, stop. That's actually clouding it. Let's look at this as a totally different thing and kind of start from more of a first principles perspective. And let's really co-create and collaborate. I think the approach that recently has been taken in the HIV space in the U.S. So there's now an alliance which includes Weave, Gilead, but it also includes Walmart, CVS. And so they've recognized who needs to be in this ecosystem, brought them together, 
and say, let's take on HIV. And how do we get to the 90, 90, 90 goals in the space? That's the approach that's needed in a lot of these spaces. The individual conditions in many cases are going to be rare enough that one company will not be able to justify the investment and think about it that way. But can we do something to like transforming the newborn screening system? That benefits all of us as an industry because lots of indications are genetic. You can pick them up at birth. So that orthogonal thinking is required to say what should we share, which is not going to be a problem from for me to differentiate in the future, but it actually helps us all as a space be more wise with our investments, but also get, get the benefit that we promise. And this space is all about the promise. And the more we can do to deliver that promise, whether it's evidence generation, whether it's newborn screening, those are places we can come together, uh, define the standards, do the activities together, and bring in non-healthcare partners who are touching these patients as well. The alliance I mentioned has Uber as one of their partners. Makes sense. They also have Tinder. But they, they've done the thinking, right? They've done the thinking on where is the patient, what is the need, and how do we make the impact? And they've kind of brought together this coalition uh, across different industries uh, to make it happen. I wonder if, to the points that you mentioned, right, these are, are smaller patient populations. They require much wider ecosystem understanding and investment to shape, right? And so I wonder it starts to naturally limit the kind of companies that can be really effective in it. You know, we saw over the past couple of years an explosion of very small companies looking to commercialize themselves, particularly in markets like the U.S. where it's really attractive. But we haven't seen a ton of successes for those companies without a wider partner that has the ability to build an established infrastructure. And do you have any predictions for, uh, for the future on how that might play out? I think there is going to be the need for both. I think when the Bayer acquired AskBio and the AskBio founders were asked, what's the benefit of the partnership? They talked about scale, resources, and time. Right? That's what all of these companies need. I may only have 100 patients in the US, but think about the globe. I may have 500. How do I get to the 500? Well, I'm not going to individually be able to go to 50 countries, but can I have a partner help me with that? A lot of these companies are born out of science. They're academics. They think about the science and how to make it work, but they haven't thought about the supply chain and how do I actually make it a scalable solution? So uh, that kind of thinking uh, is more available in like larger partners, but they've done this before in other contexts. Like anybody who's making a biologic has figured out a lot of these pieces. Uh, so why not uh, take on a partner? So I believe the, either you, as a company, you have a portfolio, which is like one way to go and you're well-funded enough to support that, or likely you'll need a partner to help you with some pieces, either if, it's XUS launches, for example, like happened in the case of Luxterna, or perhaps all of it, right? Like I'm going to just get acquired and lean on the bigger partner to help us with it. That is a challenge. In one of the discussions I had with a couple of senior leaders, the question really is, is there a sustainable scale for a company? And one indication, which is ultra orphan, will often be a struggle in this space. So you can do that, you can launch it, but given the structure and the business model here, you need the next one and the next one and the next one after that to be able to survive. Or we 
eventually transition all of these to the NIH in the US and say the NIH runs these ultra-orphan conditions. We have a treatment for it. It's not commercially viable, but we want to offer it to patients. And that can be a path that we go back to as well, right? And is we need to make sure patients continue to have access to even the ultra-orphan indications. And how do we make that a reality may require some innovative thinking, right? Transition to a nonprofit that runs this because the nonprofit has synergies of a portfolio effectively. That may be a path to consider. That's where I think the space is going up. Every large pharma company is in cell or gene therapy or has been. And I think that is an indication as well of the promise of the space. We, we, we want people to be at least able to have the platform when they can see the value, they will accelerate it forward as well. Thinking about all of these, you know, different needs and the, the evolution of how this could play out, the partnerships and collaborations that are required, uh, imagine it could be overwhelming. Maybe just to kind of give a couple of ideas on, on what are the things that we really need to get right? Like, what are your kind of two to three takeaways that you would tell a company that's looking to really be a viable player in this space on what they need to do differently to be successful? My number one idea here is experience trialing. Like you have to do this. I don't wait till the first commercial patient walks in the door. So experience trials, simulations, uh, that activity is going to be valuable. We are working with many clients on this idea now and they see the benefits almost instantaneously. Right? You can ask your clinical trial sites and they will tell you all sorts of things that are good or bad about your process. That is one aspect of it. The other one is fit to purpose solutions. Uh, not taking the, hey, I have a, you know, my standard approach is positioning, segmentation, messaging. You need to think about what that means in the space. I'm going to have too many sites. Do I really want to segment them? I'm going to have 100 patients. What am I segmenting? Uh, consider other ways of getting the insight and deeper insight often than what you would normally capture. Sarvi, from your perspective on the patient side, what would what would you give as your kind of recommendation or key takeaway? I think the two things that I'd like to share is the first that this is the problem that exists today. It doesn't exist in the future. We're seeing patients who are experiencing delays to treatment. 30% of the patients we spoke to said that they were receiving delays to treatment because of the limited support they got. We see about half of the patients who could get a CAR-T not choosing it. And so this is a problem that exists today and needs to be recognized as such. I think the one piece on customization, which Brother mentioned earlier, is equally relevant for how we approach patient engagement. The health literacy piece, which I spoke about earlier, is just one lens. We need to be looking at support networks and how they change across different conditions, but also different geographies. We need to be looking at uh, different patients' individual abilities to advocate for themselves, to seek offerings, to seek support. And I think uh, these are the important things that manufacturers need to think about and look at when they're designing for solutions that are going to make a difference. Well, thanks, Servi. Thanks, Pranav, for joining us today and sharing these perspectives. Um, I think the research that was recently published was really insightful, and that's available on zs.com. Thanks again for joining the discussion. That's it for this episode of the Inside Global Pharma podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs>